0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to look at some of the data that we have about fighters who won in the fifth, but were losing the fight before that and what it tells us about those kinds of scenarios. We'll talk to Phil DeRue, one of the best strength and conditioning coaches in the game, about why he's opening up his own business and leaving American Top Team. Plus, the crew will react to some of their things they liked about the Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan and some things that they didn't. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. All right, Luke Thomas Show, I uh, wanted to go into this with you here if I could. So Anthony Smith's corner, and this is not something that they exclusively had made a point about, but you hear a lot of times like, oh, the fighter still has a chance, right? We don't want to call the fight. The fighter still has a chance. Fighter still has a chance. Okay. Every situation is different, but we had one where a lot of folks thought they should not have come out in the fifth round. Should have stopped the fight there. And, you know, it got stopped pretty quickly. I think less than a minute into the fifth. But still, just save the guy any extra punishment. Now, I, I stated this incorrectly. I'm not sure why I did, but I stated it incorrectly. Uh, the question is, how many fights where somebody won in the fifth, they were losing prior to that? Which means, you know, did you get a stoppage or something like that, right? So, Michael Carroll from Fightmetric answered this question. Here's what he says. Uh, judges scores for finished fights have only been available to us since late 2016. So we're talking about a situation where, you know, you're down on the scorecards and you got to get a finish to win in the fifth and you do, those have only been available to us since 2016 in terms of the, like, you know, usually it used to be, uh, you win in the the fifth round, the, you never saw the judges scorecards. So you had no idea if someone was up or down on them. Now you get both. Okay. So that's only been available to us since 2016. So we can't really say definitively until then. Since there have been available, there have been 10 finishes in round five. okay? The only ones that he says are worth mentioning are the following Usman over Covington, one judge had it, 3 1 Colby. Rosenstruck over Overeem, 3 1 3 1 4 0 oh, Reem. Uh, the other one, the other two that are worth mentioning, excuse me, Rodriguez over Zombie. Young was ahead, uh, Jung was ahead, uh, 3 to 1 with two judges. And then Tate over Holm. All judges had home 38-37. Let's go through those here for just a second. Because I looked at the numbers in the uh, Anthony Smith-Glover Teixeira fight. So in rounds one and two, Smith attempted 82, respectively, and then 92 strikes. That is the most and second most strikes he's ever attempted in a UFC fight, period. So literally his most volume and his second most volume came in a single fight. Right. So there's a question about like, did he balance his offense enough over the course of five rounds? Separate discussion. In round three, he landed one of five, fell off a cliff, had a bit of a rebound, 12 of 29 in the fourth, and then zero of two in the fifth. All right. Now, let's go through this here a little bit. Usman over Covington. First of all, only one judge had a three to one Colby, and it was very, very competitive. But would you say that heading into the fifth, Usman appeared to be in a similar trajectory or place in terms of the beating he had sustained, similar to Smith. I would not say that. I think Smith was coming off of two 10-8 rounds in terms of on being on the number eight side of it. To me, that does not hold up as a meaningful comparison. Rosen struck over Overeem. Now, again, 3-1, 3-1, 4-0, Reem. Certainly, he was in a do-or-die situation in terms of getting the stoppage to win, but he was not taking a metric ton of abuse. In fact, the fight was kind of boring. I think you would agree, right? So that one doesn't qualify. Rodriguez over Zombie. So the Korean Zombie was up 3-1 to on two of the judges' scorecards. Uh, That fight was a little bit more back and forth, but essentially Zombie was the one winning, you know, and again, was not heading into the fifth, coming off of two losing 10-8 rounds. So not a meaningful comparison. Tate versus Holm, all of them had Holm up by one round. Where in the rounds that Tate was able to get the takedown, uh, she was able to win. And if she couldn't, she, she would just sort of essentially sit on the outside and get boxed. But, you know, you're asking, how much does she get boxed? The answer is, relatively speaking, not that much. So she got to finish with the rear naked choke in the fifth. But let's go to that home fight here for just a second. It was her third to last fight, which she won at 330 of the fifth round. I mean, here's the output. Uh, Holly Holm only landed two strikes in round two. In round three, she landed 13 of 41. Misha only seven of 23. But again, we're not talking about a tremendous beating here. Again, round four, 14 of 40 for Holly Holm, seven of 22, nearly identical outputs. Um, uh, actually, in the round one, kind of similar too. And then in round five, even similar there, 17 of 31 for Holly, eight of 14. So again, sort of at the losing end of things in a consistent way, but not in terms of a uh, enormous beating. In other words, since 2016, we cannot find a scenario where someone was heading into the fifth round, coming off of two, 10, eight rounds, and managed to turn the tide and win via stoppage. Doesn't exist. Right? So, this is what I mean when we talk about plausible scenarios of comeback. And I actually went back and I, Cobb, I got to tell you, I went back and I watched uh, the fight again. Have you rewatched? Smith versus Teixeira. since it went down the first time.
2: I think I watched it again the next day.
1: The next day. You know what's kind of funny to me? Smith has a much stronger argument to me about um about intelligent defense than I thought the first time. I actually thought he did a pretty good job of it. Now, it doesn't mean I think the fight was stopped on time. I still think it was stopped late. But there's a problem there. Uh on the other hand there is something that happens in the fifth. First of all, he basically collapses within about 15 seconds to the, to the match should have been over. Uh, when Glover hits him with a punch and takes him down, Glover passes him with a pass that he didn't even try to execute correctly. And it still worked. Now understand something. If you're the corner of Anthony Smith, you have a black belt in jujitsu where if let's put it this way. Now Glover is a black belt too, to be, to be clear, but uh, it, the pass that he used is literally my favorite pass, okay? I'm um, 280 pounds and I'm six foot four. It's where you drive your shoulder into the back of someone's knee and then you drive that knee into their face and you use that to pin them as you work a corner, as you come to the side of their body and then you slide the knee away across off uh, the other side of your chest and then you go chest to chest with them. That's the pass, okay? He didn't even try to do that. He just got his hand behind it and then he just turned them over. And it worked there is no chance that that pass works like that on anthony smith in rounds one or two not possible like for example let's say he had kicked and then slipped right like he didn't even get knocked down he just ended up on his back accidentally and and to tries that pass zero chance it works zero percent so if you're his corner and you're watching a guy who you know has quite literally black belt jiu-jitsu get passed that way when that should never happen Should be a red flag. And then he got mounted immediately. And then, of course, the fight got called soon thereafter. Only pointing out, when people talk about your opportunity to come back, we have a sense of what that looks like. And what it means is, you might be on the bad end of things, but in the case of Misha Tate, you did not really take a bad beating. You are just having trouble getting to the part of your game where you had a superior advantage. And once you did, you won. In the case of Rodriguez versus Zombie, certainly a back-and-forth affair, but it was kind of one, you clearly sort of could tell one guy was doing better than the other one, and and Rodriguez had to sort of pull a rabbit out of his hat, and he did, but he was not taking an epic beating up to that point. In the case of Usman versus Covington, you know, one judge had a three-to-one. Remember, another judge had a three-to-one, Usman. And uh, another one had it two to two, so it was kind of all over the place. But you could argue, certainly, he was not coming off of bad performances. In fact, he had knocked him down previously, uh, Coving- he had Covington, before even getting to the fifth round. Right. So a very different scenario. And then with Rosenstruck over against Overeem, again, he was not performing ably against Overeem. I think we can all admit that, but he had not taken a tremendous amount of beating either. If you have a fighter heading into the fifth coming off of two 10 eights, you have to have a very direct conversation with him and say, if you don't show me something immediately, immediately, I'm pulling it or you just pull it right there. And I think there's now some some basis by which to make some of these conclusions.
0: This week on World of Basketball, the head coach of the Spanish national team and Toronto Raptors assistant Sergio Scariolo joined the show and he spoke about the raps signing of Mark Gasol midway through last season. I really felt that it could be a great addition to our team. But at the same time, I had to try to be objective. Because my bosses were, were asking, you know, Massai and Nick, hey, what's your opinion? What do you think? What do you, what do you think is the pros, the cons? And that's, uh, my conclusion was always, this guy is going to help. But because it's going to bring more of a winning culture, more of a unselfish attitude, more playmaking. New episodes of World of Basketball
2: are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora.
1: Let's get to our guest. He joins us via the magic of Zoom. Been one of the best strength and conditioning coaches is in the game for some time and uh, is now sitting out on his own. So we thought we would catch up with him. It is the one and only Phil Derue. Hi, Phil. How are you?
0: I'm good, brother. Thank you, Luke Thomas. I think you're one of the best journalists in the, in the world. So there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. So let's catch up with you here for a second. So you made an announcement the other day saying that uh, you were formally leaving uh, ATT. So why don't you tell us the, the bigger picture here? What has gone on and, and, and where you headed? What's the situation?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just my time I felt to to branch out and do my own thing, you know, that I set, I set a five-year goal when I got to ATT as a coach. You know, I've been a part of the, I've been a part of American Top Team as a fighter for 11 years altogether, you know, so I just felt like, okay, five years, I knew that I was going to go ahead and make some, uh, make some good, you know, quality networking opportunities, and and also help the team out in general, um, build up my brand in a way and and help out the, uh, the coaches as well with the entire team coming up. But I knew within about five years, it was, uh, about time for me to do my own thing and and branch out and, uh, work the way I need to. Now
1: you say branch out. Uh, I mean, I know some of the details, but for the listeners who may not, how have you branched out? What, in what specific way?
0: Yeah, so now I opened up two facilities. Um, I had one that I was originally going to open up just on my own, which is going to be primarily strength and conditioning. I was going to bring the fighters over there, work with some athletes, some high school and college athletes. And then Mo Vaughn, the, um, I guess, the baseball player, Major League Baseball player, um, I used to train him at American Top Team for I would say two years. And uh, he opened up his own mega facility basically with uh, more of an aspect on teaching kids the proper technique on swinging and batting for baseball. And he said he wanted, you know, he needed me to help with some of the kids there. And then he started to develop a good brand for his own self. A year later, he opened up a 5,000 square foot facility, which is where we're going to be ending up now. And then there's 8,000 square foot of, uh, working space. So all together, you're looking at a big, a big, uh, a big gym itself. So from there I was like, okay, well I have this gym I just opened up. What do you need from me? He's like, I'd like to just bring you in. So from there I, uh, I made a decision, so I'm opening up two facilities now in a way. I'm opening up one with him and then one on my own too as well. The one on my own is gonna be just purely fitness for general population. Gonna be doing some boot camps out of there and some personal training. And then the one that we're gonna be doing in Boca Raton, Florida, which is South Florida, uh, with Mo is gonna be primarily sports performance for athletes. So I'll be bringing the fighters. I I work with a high school football team out here too as well. And then uh, my judokas and my boxing athletes
1: too as well help me out here how far away is coconut creek from boca raton
0: i would say about where we're at is about 15 minutes so it's not too oh. far
1: okay because so, what i understood was you, you have been working with a number of fighters um like dos santos uh, you've been working with um dustin poirier you've been working with joanian and chick you've been working with a number of high level ufc fighters they're going to stay with you so but they're also going to stay at att right so like how is that going to work
0: it's just fine. I mean, even though it wasn't a it wasn't a, a, bad split, um, it was just, like I said, my time to go. So they still gave them the opportunity, the fighters still have the opportunity to come train with me at my own facility. Again, it's just not under the ATT roof, you know. So, um, again, I'll be able to still work with the athletes I've been working with for well over four and a half, five years. And uh, we'll keep it going, but we'll keep it going under my roof and with my own equipment that I know will get the best out of them.
1: How common is that at ATT? I saw Jorge Masvidal, like he'll go to ATT to get in his rounds, right? But he's also got his own gym thing, not his own gym, like I don't think he owns it, but another gym that he goes to in Miami that's just his own, like I don't even know if it's ATT affiliated. So how common is that?
0: It's pretty common. I mean, you know, with ATT, it's very large. You know, you have a lot of a lot of athletes in there, a lot of high-level athletes in there. I think that you go to ATT to sharpen your skills. You go to test your skills in a way, not really to you know build your skills, if that makes sense. But you know, I, we have tremendous coaches there. They know what they're doing. But again, they're coming in; those athletes coming in, they're already at the elite level. You got guys like Junior Dos Santos and Alessio Sakara going at it on a daily basis. You know, and, and with those two, they're highly, highly elite. So. With that being said, you really just go there, the, the younger guys, the regional scene guys, they are not going there primarily to learn in a way. I mean, obviously, they're going to pick up some techniques and drills from, let's say, a Mike Brown or Steve Mako. But for the most part, the, the training partners that they're going with, they have to fight for their lives every day. You know, right. So they're testing themselves every day.
1: Now, this is the only question I'm going to ask about this, but I have to, because it just, for the person on the outside looking in, you get your eyebrows raised a little bit, right? Because Dean Thomas has been with ATT forever. He departs. Here you are departing. Obviously, there were some headlines about some new rules related to Colby and uh, Jorge and what you can say and not say. You're telling me, though, that the split you had is uh, it's amicable with ATT? Like, is there any other issue that the public should be aware of?
0: You know, Again, I spent four and a half years there, um, put in the effort, put in the time, you know, and at the end of the day, I may have been a pivotal part of progression there as far as getting the, the success we've given, we've gotten there. Um, maybe not the, the greatest farewell, um, but again, it, it is what it is. You know, that gym is so big that they will keep going, you know, down the line. I have to do my own thing. I learned a lot from there. Again, like I said, I'll never take that away from it. You know, I know now how to do things from a business perspective. Um, Far before when I was just opening up my gym, before I got to American Top Team, I learned what to do, what not to do. You know, um, I built my resume. uh, And from there, you know, I'm going to make it, even bigger, you know? And I think that a lot of times people, you know, may say that, okay, he left because there was an issue. Well, well, it may not be, or it may be an issue. And at the end of the day, I'm I'm just moving forward, you know? And I don't want to uh, dwell in the past, you know, what I've done there, it cannot be forgotten. It can't be erased, you know? Um, So for now, I'm just moving forward and getting better.
1: So, you, but you've been laying the groundwork for this for some time, right? I mean, I have sort of noticed that like as every month sort of passed and every year at this point, I suppose I, that I've sort of been aware of what you've been up to, it just seemed like it was growing and growing, right? So like the plan all along, whatever it was, five or 10 or two years, the plan all along was to have your own place. Is that the idea?
0: Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person of, I, I, I'm very motivated, right? And I want to set my legacy. At the end of the day, I see myself doing my own thing from the jump. You know, I'm, I'm, it's very hard for me. I, I've ha- I didn't have a real job. I didn't get a paycheck until I was at American Top Team. Like That just explains it all. Right? I've always been my own boss. I've only always been my own business owner. So it's very hard for me to, you know, go to meetings and team meetings at that point where I didn't feel it was necessary or, you know, that it wasn't, you know, To my best interest, because, again, strength and conditioning wasn't the high priority at that point, you know, for them, at least. And for that. So I decided, okay, let me branch out. I knew that I had to and I knew that I was going to. I just put that in my mind that I was going to, you know, see where I was going to be. And there was a ceiling there. There was never really like when I got to ATT, I knew that I had a ceiling. Right, and, I, and I, if I if I put a ceiling on myself, then I'm ultimately going to get worse. I don't want to ever stay still. I never want to be complacent. I always have to progress. So for that, I knew that in order for me to progress, I needed to learn to grow in this circumstance, and then take what I've learned and grown from, and use it in my own way and build my own brand.
1: Got it. Uh, Phil Derue joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. So Phil, like, what is the philosophy behind what you do, and like, to what extent? To what extent is what you do applicable at a, in a wide variety of different cases? And here's what I mean. I don't mean across sports because I think that probably you, you could do pretty well. What I mean is how many UFC fighters could you actually train and do a good job with? And at what point would you be training so many that you couldn't give
0: them the attention that they deserved? It's a really good question because um, at one point I was training upwards to eighty fighters at a time, and they're all at the elite level. They all were either in the UFC, Bellator, ONE FC, wherever. And um, yeah, man, it becomes almost a rat race, and you and you almost like don't like your job in a way, right? You 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 forget why you do things, and it's because of the fact that you're almost triaging a lot of the the training because guys are coming in and out, in and out, in and out, and. That's one thing that I would say that it was an issue with American top team is that we had so many fighters and so many fighters at the elite level that all needed that the work. Um, and some of them would come late, some of them would be coming, you know, from overseas and other parts of the country that I know nothing about. So with that, I had no time to do what I needed to do. Now I downsize it. I take the guys that I truly you know, have been with me and like me and trust me um, and we've seen results with and then we keep this moving forward and I do it the right way, in my opinion, on my own terms, with my own, with my own methodologies or, and with my own exercises that I can utilize and also my own equipment, whereas that I, I didn't really have that at American Top Team. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I may do what I had and we were successful with it, but I know I can do a better job now because I have the things that I, that I need.
1: Uh, are these, uh, in terms of the opening of these facilities, I know some of them must be open now, but what is the status like? Um, are they all open now? Is there a date in mind for the ones that aren't? Where are we in this process?
0: Yeah, we're about two weeks away, I believe. I think we're two weeks out from where we can open up the one in Boca, the one in Pompano Beach, which is more uh, Broward County. Um, it's a little bit more south. You know, that's still up Um to find, I don't know when they're actually going to open everything up. You know, obviously we're going through a pandemic era. So we're still waiting on that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a mess. Yeah. I, I mean, all I can do right now is keep, you know, doing what I can control and control the controllables and not worry about anything else, you know?
1: Yeah, fair enough. So it sounds like for the time being, and you know, know, who who knows in five to 10 years, that what you're looking to do is maybe the stuff with Mo Vaughn, there's a wide applicability across a wide range of athletes. But for the fighter stuff, you're still looking, I'm going to use this word in the way that it is intended, sort of like a boutique kind of service. Is that the idea?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just want to be able to focus on the people that I want to focus on.
1: Here's what I'm wondering. Are you only training like that UFC Bellator 1FC standard or would you train someone well below that?
0: At this point with, and I don't want to sound like big headed or cocky at this point, I don't have the time nor the ability right now to train so many fighters, right? Right. Because I have a... High school football team. I have four baseball teams. I have soccer teams. Now, and then also on top of that, you have my other athletes, not just my MMA guys, but my boxing, my boxing athletes, my chudokas, that are getting ready hopefully for the Olympics next year now. You know, so I don't have a lot of time to be taking on anybody at any point, you know. But what I am gonna be doing is putting together a coaching staff that I actually certify my own self that are involved in my mentorship or anybody that wants to come in and learn my methodology and learn the principles that I utilize for all the athletes. And then they can be a part of the Drew Strong team and coach beside me so that I can get a little bit of help. Because again, when you're when you're trying to build a business, you can't always be in the business, right? You always have to you know, figure out a way to delegate your time efficiently, but also get the best out of the athletes so that you can have results no matter what. But I have to coach these coaches in order to do so. So that's the, that's the process that we're going through now.
1: Got it. Okay. Now in terms of, uh, if, there, if there's a way to explain it in terms of like layman's terms and as sort of a short order explanation, what is it, that, what is your value add as a coach? Like, what is it that you do a little bit differently in terms of strength and conditioning? If someone had a choice to go between you and X or
0: Y, why are you the appropriate choice? I listen to the athlete. I care about what I do. I love what I do. I'm passionate, you know, uh, The one thing that I can say when it comes down to combat sports is that I know exactly what they're feeling because I've been there. You know, when it comes down to football, I know how it is because I've been there. Um, And then I'm always constantly working. I can primarily say that without a shadow of a doubt, I'm the hardest worker in any room that I step in. That's just the way I am. So with that, I'm highly competitive. That allows me to work hard and forget all of the other circumstances and to stay focused on the task. And that was one thing that I took with me when I was fighting and competing. Now I take with me as a coach and as a, as a father, as a husband, I'm full in, I'm all in all the time, no matter what, if I'm driving, I'm listening to podcasts, I'm learning. If I'm at home, I'm reading, you know, if I'm not playing with my son or doing something with my family, I'm spending my time getting better. Now I know you say, Oh, well, a lot of coaches do that yeah but i doubt that they're up at 4:30 in the morning getting what they need to get done 3 hours beforehand before they go to the go to the gym and actually coach for 10 hours and then come back and do it again so there's there's a lot there that i can say but for the most part it's the passion the love of what i do and also the understanding of what i do and for the athlete i understand them
1: Let me talk about some of your clients here. If we can, Dustin Poirier has been itching for a fight. I know the last one didn't necessarily go his way, but Hey, he fought maybe the best fighter on earth, right? So things are going to happen. Um,
0: what would you like to see next for Dustin in a perfect Uh, world? In a perfect world. I I talked about this. He's actually coming in today, but in a perfect world, I like to see him beat Dan hooker, obviously, uh, somewhat of either a knockout or submission. Um, I like to see Ferguson, or not Ferguson, uh, Gagey lose to Khabib. And then we get the <laughs> shot, you know, we a, get the another shot. one of those. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of the day, we don't have anything to prove against Gagey. Now Gagey has definitely gotten better. We know that, um, you know, Trevor Whitman is a phenomenal coach. I have so much respect for that guy. Um, but what I can say is that he actually listened to Trevor Whitman and is now actually utilizing his skills to that degree that he needs to. For me, I'd like to see Dustin take on and beat the person that's beaten him so that he can get that title. Now, that's very hard to do because Khabib is arguably one of the best fighters in the world, if not the best. And then from that, you know, again, it's a, it's a hard matchup for Dustin. I think a better matchup would be Gagey. So if Gagey did beat Khabib, i like to see I mean, KG maybe too, but I think that, you know, from just from a legacy standpoint, he has to try to you know, get that one back. But from the best opportunity standpoint, if Gagey does win, I think that that gives us a shot at the title and winning that title.
1: What about the idea of, uh, of, uh, Dustin versus Tony? Obviously Tony has to recover. Okay. But let's assume that he does and they match them up because that's an interesting fight from a technique standpoint and from a cardiovascular standpoint, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like he, he matches up well. Uh, you know, Dustin is more technical of a boxer. Obviously, we know that, uh, you know, Ferguson, you know, he he shows a lot of different holes in his game in a way. Uh, he's very unorthodox, you know, so that that may throw Dustin off a bit. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like from a skill perspective, he has what it takes. And Ferguson, in my opinion, is getting a little bit older. He's 30, He's 38, right? 30,
1: Thirty-seven, ago. but he's he, he's up there for lightweight. That is
0: quite old, yeah. Yeah, he's getting up there. So with that, you know, I mean, you have youth on your side. You have experience too, as well, and then you have the technique and skill to back it up. So I think that's a good matchup, no matter what. But I, we'll we'll see how how fast you know Ferguson can recover, because I know that Dustin is itching to fight. He wants to fight, you know, somewhere either in June or August, the latest. Mm. So you know, we'll see what's up.
1: And then for Ioana and Jacek, and this is true, you can ask the producer, I thought she won the last fight. We know it was crazy close. So what are you going to do? But the only thing that sort of worried me a little bit was, you know, that's a lot of abuse to take over five rounds. I'm sure she's still up for another challenge, but if you talk to her and, you know, is there, I know Mike Brown was like, Oh, rematch, but man, that was a brutal fight.
0: Yeah, it was a good fight. It was one of the best fights I've ever seen, to be honest. Yeah, it was tremendous yeah and i was i was super proud of her man just just from the level of heart that she showed and and just just the grit to try to to win and get over that i thought she won too but i'm being biased you know whatever but i think after the fight even she said it man she she wants to rematch and and she, she knows she won the fight so i talked to her probably two weeks ago she's having fun she usually does she plays hard but she trains hard too as well so she has that healthy balance you know, she's enjoying her life, you know, she's enjoying the time that she spends with her family. But for now, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in in the near future, possibly not putting words in her mouth, I don't really know, but I think possibly by the end of the year, we're maybe looking to get back into camp. And I would like to see her fight, uh, Whaley again. But, you know, I know that it's it's always a hard fight when you're fighting that girl, you know, but where do you go from there? What else does she have to prove, you know? Right. I think that that's the only fight you make. And I think that's the only fight that JJ actually wants because at the end of the day, she doesn't need to fight anymore. She doesn't really need to prove anything anymore, maybe to herself, but not to anybody else.
1: Right. Fair point. All right, Phil. So if uh, folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, uh, what's the best place to do that?
0: Yeah, so you can go onto my website derustrong.com. You can also check me out on Instagram at derustrong, my Twitter at derustrong, and I have a YouTube channel. I put out a lot of video and content on there too. So it's Phil Derustrong, check me out there too.
1: And I saw uh, you crossed 100,000 subscriber mark not too long ago. So congrats, my friend. You are on your way. I wish you nothing but a uh, maiden voyage or on your maiden voyage into your uh, your own business. I wish you nothing but uh, calm seas and uh, great winds, my friend. Congratulations on all your success
0: thanks brother I appreciate it
2: Anthony Smith on MMA tonight is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje
1: is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson so I'm not sure if they ran that back if it would look much different maybe that was the Gaethje effect like maybe it's not Tony maybe he didn't have an off night and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad at this point there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155 pounder on the planet
2: Tuesday through Thursday 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight nation.
1: I want to get to this conversation about the last dance, and we are going to. Very quickly, however, we do have some breaking news. Let's do it. Yeah. There it is. Okay, breaking news. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Uh, this comes to us from MMA junkies Mike Bond and Farah Hanoon. They write the following. A massive bantamweight fight between... Corey Sandhagen and Al Sterling has been added to UFC 250. Now, it's not going to be for Henry Cejudo's title, but Sandhagen, who is and 12-1 and then undefeated in the UFC, and Sterling, who is 18-3 in MMA, and then I think he is 10-3 and in UFC, will fight for a prime contender position in one of the sport's deepest weight classes. MMA Junkie confirmed with people close to the situation that contracts have been signed by both fighters. Um, Sandhagen has been pushing for a fight. At 135 since he beat Rafael Sensau at 241 in August. Uh he was angling for a Dominic Cruz fight, and they got, you know, just went away. Sterling, meanwhile, is on a four-fight one run, and he recently beat Pedro Munoz at UFC 238 in June. Of course, he had the injury thereafter. 250 looks like this. Uh Nunes versus Spencer, Devin Clark versus Alonzo Menafield, Ian Heinisch versus Gerald Meershart, Jucier, Jucier Formiga, taking on Alex Perez, Charles Bird versus Maki Pitolo. Neil Magny versus Anthony Rocco Martin and Corey Sandhagen versus Aljamain Sterling. So you got, I would say, uh, I'm going to say Nunez, Spencer, Sandhagen, Sterling, Magny, Martin, and uh, maybe Formiga Perez are the ones on this that are pretty interesting. The rest I could sort of give or take, but that is a monster, monster bantamweight fight. We'll probably talk more about that tomorrow. All right, 877-FIGHT93, 877-344-4893. I want to bring in Ty here. Cobb and I talked about this yesterday, and Cobb didn't seem to agree, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here, but part of me wonders here. Uh, Ty is one of the uh, producers, certainly while we're live this week. Hi, Ty. How are you? What's going on, my man? How you doing? T- doing well, doing well. Uh, all right, Ty. Let me tell you how I'm feeling about The Last Dance. Tell me if uh, if I'm off on something. I enjoyed it. In fact, I really enjoyed it. You got to remember, I was 18 in 1998 when they won, the Bulls did their final championship. So, like, through my single-digit years and then teens, my adolescence, I should say, and then teens, you know, Michael Jordan was the guy among all guys. He was the king. He was the hero. You know the whole story. I'm sure you saw the documentary, and even before that, I guess you had probably some idea of what it all meant. But just to give you a sense of, like, where I was in his, um, as he was a popular figure, it was there. And so I have a soft spot for anything that has to do with nostalgia now that I'm 40. And I really enjoyed pieces of the documentary. And I knew part of it before, like what an insane competitor he was. But I get it. But, you know, I was thinking about it when it was over. And here was one thing that I just, I could not stop thinking about. That documentary trashed a lot of all-timers. And some of them might have deserved to have been trashed. But, like Isaiah Thomas or something. But... I don't know, man. Scottie Pippen reportedly is furious about how he was made to look. Number one, they trashed Patrick Ewing. They trashed Stockton. They trashed Barkley. They trashed uh, Malone. They trashed, I mean, any number of, you know, role players on the Bulls. They trashed, you know, virtually anyone who had any issue with MJ along the way. And the reason why it ended up being that way is in order to get Michael Jordan's participation In this documentary, they had to tell it in a way that was pleasing to him essentially, or at least a strong degree of his version of events. But he, as we can tell, is a psychotic competitor, truly psychotic. And in the end, it was like, it was just a vanity project for him, which I didn't mind altogether. But I don't know, Ty, are you with me that in the end, they kind of made a lot of people who were great look bad.
3: Some of them, yeah. But how about Steve Kerr? We got a chance to see his story. I don't know if a lot True. of people were familiar with not just the situation with his dad, but how him and Jordan interacted after him, he was punched in the face. Phil Jackson, a lot of people, because of how his tenure ended with the Knicks as the G, as the president of the basketball operations, felt like Phil was someone who was, you know, persona non grata. So it, it kind of illuminated just how great he was. So I agree with you, Scottie Pippen, some of it is on himself, right? You know, not going yes, to a playoff fair. game, uh, the back injury, the headache, and, and the whole nine. But I, I'm with you. Like, part of it is in order for us to get the the best version of this, it had to be told from Michael Jordan's point of view because though it was sold as a, the last dance, the Jordan, uh, the Bulls documentary, this was really about Michael Jordan. And I, I feel like in order for us to get the, the best version of that, we needed to see it from his perspective. So it doesn't bother me as much. While, like I said, some of those feature stories, uh, we got a chance to see Phil Jackson and and uh, Steve Kerr and Scott Burrell. So a lot of that, I, I didn't really mind too much.
1: All right. Now, one person who is deeply upset about it is Michael Jordan teammate, Horace Grant. He was on a Chicago radio show. And I guess he is furious about... Different parts of his portrayal, because he was sort of made to look a little bit weak uh, through different issues he had with MJ. We have an audio clip of him essentially stating how he thought the whole thing is BS. Let me hear it, please. That is a, a downright, outright, completely lie, 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 lie. And as I stated, if MJ had a grudge with me, let's settle it like man. Let's talk about it, or we can settle settle it another way. But yet and still, he goes out and put this lie out that I was the source behind. Like, my point is that he called, he said I was a snitch. But yet and still, after 30 or 35 years, he brings up uh, one of his teammates' room, this one of the teammates' room and saying coke and weed and women. What's that got to do with anything? If you want to call somebody a snitch, that's a damn snitch right there. Okay, so a couple things here. Uh, Ty and uh, Cobb, he's reacting to the idea that the MJ rules were created because of him. Is that what he's calling the lie? Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's
2: what he's calling
1: the lie. Yep. Okay. Uh, And then he's talking about also the first episode, I believe, first or second episode of the documentary when he talks about getting to the NBA and going to a player's room and there was this, this, you know, Caligula-esque party, and he was like, yeah, I don't want any of it. Is that what he's referencing, or is there something else?
3: Yes, that with the women and the drugs and the lines, he's talking about that as well.
1: Okay, so on the Horace Grant thing, I mean, I don't know what you guys make of what he said there. The only thing I would add is you know, it's not really snitching if you don't name anyone So that's a fairly weak argument. But what do you get about the idea that like, dude, even his teammates are kind of pissed at him. Maybe not Kerr, but Horace Grant, he got made to look bad in this one, like really bad. They didn't talk about Luke Longley at all, which granted, okay, he didn't have the biggest contribution, but you know, they abused Tony Kukoc. What do you make of this tie?
3: Well, I, I can understand what Horace Grant feels because think about how awkward it is. If you are sitting at home with your family and you're watching this documentary And now you are being bamboozled or not bamboozled. You're being loaded with questions about what happened in that hotel room. Were you a part of that? Even though he didn't name names, your wife, your kids know you were on that team. So now there's that awkward conversation that needs to be had. So I can understand him from that perspective.
2: Cobb. I was actually okay with a lot of the perspective given, like even the coup coach thing, like my father laughed because he thinks he raised two heartless sons because we were in lockstep. Like, look, Yes, it was kind of a jerky move to beat up Coach the way they did in the Olympics. But on the positive side, you could say that Jordan was a good teammate and stuck with Scottie Pippen and tried to show, like, yeah, you want to spend money on Coach instead of Pippen? We're going to show you exactly how much better the two of us are and how much better Scottie Pippen is than this guy that you're going to spend this money on. There's weird things that you could kind of, like, devil's advocate it and play it like maybe Jordan was a good teammate in this sense. But uh, I was mostly fine with the way things were portrayed. I don't know. I don't know
1: how. I mean, I get you're sending a message to an adversary in the front office, but you're doing it at the expense of a guy who has nothing to do with that. And to me, you know, ritually torturing a guy and hazing him. I I don't know. I, I, I tend to see that there's probably another way to go about that to get your point across rather than making someone's life miserable who's not essentially responsible. And I think the other part here is they just announced that ESPN is working on Brady documentary. Understand what Tom Brady is doing right now. He is literally selling something on his website. This guy is involved with Alex Guerrero, who is his trainer. The guy is a total quack who has theories about physical science and performance that are completely out to lunch. People who have worked with him have popped for PEDs. Just keep that in mind. That's a fact. It's not my opinion. And here's the other problem with this. This guy, in order for Brady to tell his story, uh, he's going to have to tell it in terms pleasing to him. Do you understand how nauseating that that is going to be in all likelihood and how full of nonsense and bad faith posturing it's likely to be? Like this idea, I know that they always say that history should be written by the winners or that it is. I don't know that that is A, always true or B, a good idea, Ty. And I think if this idea of like, well, to get access, we'll just let the successful bash their rivals even 20, 30 years later and make them all look bad. I don't know, man. If someone did that in MMA and they just trashed all the fighters that they fought even 20, 30 years later, I think people would have a right to be like, dude, why are you making documentaries that just already feed into the narrative that these guys want you to believe? Facts about the other side of the story be damned.
3: Now, but the question is, how often is that going to happen? We're talking about, like, transcendent athletes, like the greatest of the greats. We're not, no offense, taking a shot at Derek Fisher, but we're not going to do this with Derek Fisher and the Lakers. You know, it's not like we're going to just take, you know, Jason Worth and the Phillies and, and give him that type of authority. I, I think when you talk about Jordan and Brady, it's a little bit different, and I don't think it's going to be something that becomes – so uh, this is unprecedented. I don't. I don't think that we're, you know, certainly setting, like – Uh, a landmark for what's what's going to be going forward for every documentary that we get
1: no i don't think so either however while you cannot do it at scale you're doing it for the most important stories right i mean i don't know what lebron is going to do at some point but my hunch is to get the kind of access that people really want from lebron it's going to come with a cost i mean you already know if kd makes a documentary or a documentary is made about kd You know, I mean, he's not doing that on anyone else's terms. And I get that's the price of access. I just feel like these larger than life figures, you know, long after they're playing days are over Cobb, lording over narratives uh, about them and their rivals and their success and how everyone should view it. It makes me a little uncomfortable. And maybe the last dance wasn't the one that did that for you. But I suspect if this keeps going, you're going to find one that does. You're not going to like it. You know, I I can't wait to hear what Tom Brady has to say about the two Super Bowls. They lost to the Giants. Um, You know, my hunch is that they're not going to say kind things. You're going to like, oh well, who cares? We won. Yeah. But if they can reframe the narrative on some of this stuff, it'll piss you off, dude. I guarantee it.
2: Yeah. But in fairness, though, I kind of agree with Ty. Like you're talking about larger than life sports athletes and, and to me Jordan's way bigger in basketball than Brady is to football but you know, <laughs> that's thinks- debatable but I understand your point but wait, I don't think that's even close to debatable. <laughs> I think Jordan was just a force. Uh,
1: this, is, this is precisely my point. You can make a documentary that someone under the auspices of his executive production will make it look exactly like that. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I agree with you that the comparison falls short. I understand that because we're talking about two entirely different sports in the way they're constructed. But when somebody that powerful, and he is pretty powerful, has control over the narrative, they can make them say almost whatever they want want dude and that when you define history under the terms of the great successors things that are not supposed to be forgotten will be forgotten and things will get emphasized that are not supposed to be emphasized it will happen it's a guarantee
3: just a little pushback though on uh, just a little pushback though on your lebron example remember he is built different than than MJ is like LeBron's not treating his teammates and his coaches the way Michael did and we also know about LeBron he is so calculated to a fault in how he allows himself to be viewed by the public where I don't think MJ cared too much about that so LeBron's documentary is is going to be a lot different in that regard.
1: Maybe. Maybe. But he, here's also a guy who was stung by the decision and it was made to look bad, and they were burning his jersey. And I know he's gone a long way towards redemption, but I bet that the fresh hell that he entered into... You know, when he went to Miami, it wasn't... You know, he had some epic collapses in the playoffs. Uh, I bet that will enter into his mind about what kind of narratives are, are, are created about him. You're right. He is a bit of a different guy in that way. But, I mean, I don't know, folks. I, I think if you just start letting in grand detail, these huge figures in various sports dictate to the world how they're remembered, you're not merely not getting the truth. You're going to get a really fucked up version of it. I I, I tend to think this this will happen again.
2: In fairness, Luke, I mean, it's not like they just gave the Bulls side of the story and didn't go talk to the other guys. Now, to what extent Ewing, Barkley, Reggie Miller, all these guys got the details of what Jordan was saying, we don't know. But they had a chance to speak their piece on it. And for the most part, they all just kind of bowed down to how good Jordan was.
1: Yeah, but that's what you saw. You actually don't know what else they cut. A buddy True. of mine, a buddy of mine, we had Chad Wesley Smith on the show. This is a much smaller thing. But in powerlifting, there's this famous gym called West Side Gym. In fact, the guys who run it uh, have trained some MMA fighters like Matt Brown and some other ones. Famous, 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 famous gym in that world. OK, so let's say in that world, it's a big deal. And there was a documentary made about them. And Chad Wesley Smith, who is a world record powerlifter, uh, can't stand their methods and thinks they are totally unscientific and was interviewed for the documentary for like two hours, and they included not one word of his pushback in it, right? Again, to get access, they're defining the terms of their existence to the world, which to me is like, you know, if they wanted to produce their own thing, that's fine. But now when you've got outside parties, like, especially in this case, ESPN doing it for them, again, I mean, Clyde Drexler got made to look like a pedestrian bum. You know what I mean? Like, all these guys just got made to look like they're nothing. And I... I didn't think each like you didn't come away thinking Drexler was trash or that Ewing was trash. And you definitely came away understanding that who was the 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 greater um, who was more successful of each of those rivalries. Okay, fine. But if you're Ewing, um, this is what I said to Cobb, Ty. Imagine Ewing telling his stories of the MJ playoffs with the Bulls. Imagine, I don't know, Drexler telling his side of the stories. Would it sound the same? You know, and their version is going to be their own version. I'm really pointing out, you know, I don't think people are fully inventorying how much this whole thing is. It's a Jordan, you know, you know, slop job from episode one to ten, and they just do clever tricks to make you think otherwise. If the other people were telling the stories, they would not sound the same. I think that kind of matters.
3: Yeah, that's true. But just to push back on that a little bit more, we did see. Um, magic and bird, right? Like they were illuminated to some degree as far as their relationship with, with, was with Michael. And we got to like them a little bit more because when he came into the league, they were the big dogs. They were the, the NBA legends and he had to snatch that title belt from them. And we saw that relationship. So it's not like they were made to look like, you know, the Drexlers and, and the Ewings, as you put it. So we did see some of the stars highlighted as well. I, I feel like there was like an equal balance. May, maybe not to your liking, but you know, there there was a little
1: bit of an equal balance. My, my sense on this, just to wrap up on this is I feel like what they did was, you know, magic were the all time, like, you know, let's say 10 best players, right? Bird, same kind of thing. MJ, same kind of thing. Kobe, same kind of thing. And of course, Kobe has just died. Anyone on that level, they didn't trash anyone a step below that (laughs) they trashed. That's sort of my view. If you are, if you were an all time, great, they kind of let it rock. But if you weren't, you know, uh, God help you. You were not going to come out of that looking great.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from three to six p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel one fifty-six. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.